God was manifested in the flesh. I didn't make those words up. I read them from 1 Timothy 3.16. Christians of all centuries since the days of the apostles have confessed that God was manifested in the flesh. And they've wrestled with how to best explain what that means because it sounds mysterious. It's actually called a mystery. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. But it's a revealed mystery. It's not something that we can't know. It's something that we can know about. We can't certainly exhaust the meaning of it. But we can put the pieces of Scripture together and and make concluding statements about this. It is called here the mystery of godliness, but it's revealed. Because of this mystery, we sing things like this. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. A wonderful line from Charles Wesley's Christmas hymn. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. And how about this one? Christ, the mighty maker, died. The mighty maker died. How do we sort that out and make sense of that? God died? How about this one? That thou, my God, you know the rest of the line, shouldst die for me. Some of you might be aware that R.C. Sproul, he knows better now. He picked on that, and he didn't really like it. Was it Sproul? Was he the one that did that? And I read that, and I thought, I wanted to pull my John Gershner voice out and say, R.C., you know, uh, it's okay. There is a way we can sing these words and actually be right and orthodox. Um, now, are these hymns correct? I think they are. You know how I often bring hymns up and I say, uh, is this right? Is that scriptural? Maybe not the exact words in that order, but the intention of what they mean there. Uh, and I think, I think they're right. I also think that our confession kind of is going to help us We're going to get to the scriptures after that, but if you'd like to listen to the Confession of Faith, it's our doctrinal statement, Second London Confession of 1677-89, you can turn to it in the back of your hymnal, or you can just listen to these words. These come from chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator, okay, chapter 8 obviously comes after chapter 2 of God and of the Holy Trinity, And of the various things chapter 2 says, one thing is that God is immutable. So whatever chapter 8 says, it can't change God, because God's immutable. Now, as I read these words, they're very Christian words. Our confession is not some unique thing um, invented, okay? Okay. They're borrowing language that the church has used since the apostolic era. But notice these words, person, nature, joined, united, and unity of person. Okay, I use those words almost every every week. And Christians use that language. When I was a new believer, somebody said, do you believe in the hypostatic union? 
I don't know what I did. I probably went, what in the world is that? It means the union of two natures, great is the mystery of godliness, in the one person who is the Son of God. So that the Son of God incarnate has, in quotes, a divine nature through which he acts, a human nature through which he acts. Here are the words. The Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things he hath made, did, this is the Son of God, did, when the fullness of time was come, take unto him, the person, man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. So that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined, remember I said take note of that word, joined together in one person, one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. And then in eight, uh, chapter 8, paragraph 3, the Lord Jesus in his human nature thus united to the divine in the person of the Son. There's that hypostatic union thing. We'll talk about that a little more. Paragraph 7. Christ in the work of mediation acteth according to both natures. By each nature doing that which is proper to itself, yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. The church of God, which he purchased... With his own, what's the next word? Blood. God has blood. God the Son incarnate has blood by virtue of his human nature. That's why I think you can say, well, God died as long as you qualify it. God the Son incarnate died according to the only nature that can die, the human nature. Have you ever wondered why Christianity is big on Christ assuming flesh, body, and soul? Why did he do that? We've we got to answer that question, right? Why did he assume our nature? For us and for our salvation, that's right. To fix it. But not only to fix it by virtue of his obedience, but to suffer according to it. So that guilt, just liability to punishment, was taken by him instead of those of us who believe upon him getting it. Okay? And then, he, and then it's glorified in his resurrection, and that's our hope, that he's the first fruits of a great resurrection harvest to come. And we await the Savior who is going to execute divine power, terminating on our souls and bodies, uniting our souls back to our bodies, but they're going to be glorified like his. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. So these are technical, this is technical language, person, nature, a union, but it's very Christian to speak this way. 
And hopefully in the two sermons today, you'll go, you know what? We sing this quite often, and I really haven't really thought that much about it. Uh, Or listen to the Christmas carols, if they're doing the good ones. They're very much person, nature, union, language. Maybe they use synonyms, but it's all there. Person. What is meant by a person? The person, by person is meant the who, or we might say the enacting subject. Um, I have a cheesy illustration to kind of help you there. If Mario recognizes that a window was broken in the fellowship hall, he might ask, who did this? Who was the active subject to cause this effect? I hope this isn't, this never happens, by the way. He finds out that it was a guy named Joe, or we can say little Eddie. Oh, he's not here. I won't use you. Let's just call him Joe. Joe's a person. Now, that's what person is, an acting agent. But an acting agent is acting according to a nature, something that gives him the ability to do what he did. So by nature is meant the what of an acting subject that allows him to act. So we might say the thing by which he acts. If it is said, how, or asked, how did Joe do this? Joe did it. Broke the window. How did he do it? The answer could be something like this. By punching it with his fist. Okay? Now, if we thought a bit more about Joe, we would conclude Joe has a fist, and Joe is able to cause it to break a window. And he is able to do that because he has a body which is moved by his soul. Joe is a person with a human nature by which he does things. Got it? By joined, I just define person and nature. By joined, united, and unity of the person is meant the hypostatic union, the technical phrase that indicates that the Son of God incarnate is one who but has two what's by which he acts. Who is he? The Son of God. How does he act? By virtue of his divine nature and by virtue of his human nature. Where did you put Lazarus? Lazarus, he asked. Then he says, Lazarus, come forth. I thirst. He wept. He slept. He was weary. And then he says, before Abraham was, I am. So we got to sort through that, right? Who is speaking? The Son of God. The Son of God incarnate. He's using vocal cords. He's bringing air in. He's forcing it out. His lips are shaped in a certain way so that whatever language he was speaking, Aramaic probably. He makes the sounds that Aramaic speakers would be able to, well, they don't cause them to come. They just come. It's weird. These, okay, waves are going boom and producing those sounds in their ears. And he's speaking by virtue of human faculties. 
But he speaks about, not his human faculties, before Abraham was born, I am. Those of you who read the Bible know that, that first time we hear that connected to Abraham is in Exodus chapter 3. We'll get there in a second. So Jesus, or the Son of God incarnate, is one who, but, but has, and two what's by which he acts. The two what's are the divine nature and the human nature, natures by which he acts. If we ask, who is Christ, we rightly answer, the Son of God incarnate. If we ask, what is Christ, we rightly answer, God and man in one person. In terms of persons, nature is that by virtue of which they know, will, and act. The one person of the incarnate Son acts by virtue of two natures, doing human things, doing divine things. Do we want to say, oh, therefore, there's two persons? If you want to say that, stop wanting to say that. That's actually an ancient heresy called Nestorianism. Some of you have heard that term before. There are two persons that we can call Jesus or the Son. No, one person, two natures. There's a famous ancient statement about this hypostatic union doctrine. Here's what it says. I am what I was, to it, God, nor was I what I am, namely man. Now I am called both, to it, God and man. It probably comes from Augustine. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Now you might be sitting here going, hey, 15 minutes in, you haven't even touched the Bible. First words I said were right from 1 Timothy 3.16. But we got to go to the Bible, right? We need to go to Scripture. We can't just say, well, the Chalcedonian definition of 451 says it, therefore. We don't do that. We go to Scripture. And when approaching Scripture to mine out its portrait of our Lord, one verse won't do. Will it? Because there is no one verse about who our Lord is that tells you everything there is to know about him. I thirst. He's a man. Nothing has come into being that has come into being except by him. He's God. See what I just did there? You have man texts. You have God texts. How do we parse those things? Instead, we must allow the scripture to speak, I'll call it symphonically, the musicians like that, or, or we will have a truncated Christology. In other words, we need to allow the canon, the Old and New Testaments, to speak as such, as the written word of God, and when we do, we will come to the conclusion that scripture's parts end up producing harmonious sounds in terms of this incarnation doctrine. Though from differing sections of the orchestra, right? We go to various places in the orchestra of Scripture as it's giving a full portrait of our Lord. Since we believe Scripture is the written word of God, we 
come to all its parts already committed to the unified message on whatever subject it addresses, including um, the incarnation, God being manifested um, in the flesh. Now, we're going to go to John chapter 1 first, so you can turn there. Um, The first 14 or 18 verses is called the prologue, the first words uh, in the gospel about what John's going to say in the entirety of the gospel. As you're turning there, uh, um, uh, and before I, I get there, I'd like to preface my discussion with this observation. Not every text of scripture says everything there is to say on the issues involved in the text under investigation. Right? Not every text of scripture, individual text, says it all about, well, if it ever happens, it doesn't happen often, says it all, says everything there is to know from scripture about the issues this scripture text is discussing. We're not to demand of single verses of scripture to give a full portrait of the doctrinal and theological issues involved in them. So let's go to John 1, very famous well-known passage, isn't it? John 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The Word is said to be in the beginning with God and God himself. Now, that's interesting, and throughout the ages, you know what scripture interpreters have done there. They're going, okay, we got the word who was with God, and we have the word who is God. Okay, the word must be a divine person, and this God that he's with must also be a divine person, because there's, it's the language of some sort of relation with. Um, John will be clearer as elsewhere in scripture. Father, son, spirit, relational terms. The father is father by virtue of the son being the son of the father. So it's relational terms. So there, we see it here in John 1.1. 1, 1. But notice verse 3. Um, All things were made through him. Who does the him refer to? The word. All things were made through the word, him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. So here we have, in the beginning, the word and God, but the word is also named God. And now we have the word who is also named God, who is with God, we'd say the father, He created everything. Nothing that is coming to being is coming to being apart from him, the word. So the word's the creator. So we go from, you know, Trinitarian-like stuff in verses 1 and 2 to creation in verse 3. But then go down to verse 14 because here's the head scratcher. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here is the incarnation, the enfleshment of the Word, who's also the creator of all things, and who is also in the beginning with God and himself God. 
So we have first the Word, then he's called God, then he creates, then he's incarnated. It's great, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Here's the difficulty I want to get at. The creator, the word, became flesh. Isn't that odd? If it's not odd, I'm sticking that thought into your head. Make it odd in your brain. Do it fast. It's odd, at least at first glance. How do we parse this in a manner that makes scriptural sense? Given that the word is God, John says that, He is God eternally and God immutably, right? If he's God, then he's got to be eternal and immutable. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Divinity can't change, but can bring being into being that had no being, including the flesh of Christ. The flesh of Christ at one time was not, and then it came to be. The flesh of Christ signifies real human nature, body and soul, is not eternal. The divinity of Christ is eternal. The flesh of Christ is not immutable. He grew in stature and wisdom among men, right? Luke chapter 2, verses 40 and 52 say basically the same thing. The flesh of Christ came to be in the womb of the virgin. The flesh of Christ was not eternal, and it came with him from heaven. It was wrought by God in the womb on earth. Flesh can not be, then be, but it can't be divinity. So there's another thing. Flesh is flesh, and word is word. If word takes flesh into the unity of the one person, then we have to guard against the flesh becoming part word, excuse me, the word becoming part flesh and the flesh becoming part word. Because if that happens, we've got a third thing. And we don't have a real incarnation of God. Now, if you ever have read John 1, 1 through 14, and you're thinking to yourself, does it have to be this hard? It's actually harder than I'm making it. I think it's crucial when we think about verse 14 to allow the words in John 1, 1 and 2 to help us trying to make our way through a proper understanding of verse 14, okay? So we read the passage 1, 1 through 14, and here's what I'm saying. Okay, if you want to get verse 14 right, go back and see if it helps you. So let's do that. The Word is God and was in the beginning with God, right? We get that from 1, 1 and 2. If the word is a divine person, that's what's going on here, it seems the God he was with is also a divine person, since he is God, but not the word. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So is the God that the Word was with, is he the Word? No, but he's God, and the Word was God. So the Word is a divine person, and this God that he was with is divine person. Assuming the Word is to be a divine person, how can he become flesh and still be the Word while becoming flesh? It's a huge question, isn't it? And we've got to be careful here. Our scriptural instinct ought to be to preserve the wordness of the Word, his divinity, and the, his fleshness, his humanity. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, really born of a woman. Okay? Fleshness. But how is this best stated? Now, this is a minefield here for heresy, so we, I, I want to make sure none of the members of my church are heretical on this. All of us have said heretical things before on these things. It doesn't make us heretics, but we want to scrub ourselves of bad, bad ways of putting the incarnation of the Son of God and try to say it in the best way we can say it. Remember that the Word is a person, a divine person. So do we want to say that the Word is a person and the flesh he became is a person? We don't want to say that. Okay, I already covered that. It is proper to say one person, two natures. We've already talked about that. So given Scripture, we ought to protect the unity of person, but not to the neglect of the distinct natures. Otherwise, there's a bunch of texts Throughout the Bible, we can't understand. Now, let's go back to John 1, 1, and 2 again. So I'm trying to put a Trinitarian lens, okay, into your brain to, to read verse 14 with. The Word is a person in God. So given what the Old Testament says about God, the Word being God is omnipresent because He is God, right? If the Word is God then whatever the Old Testament says about God, that's true of the Word. The Old Testament says creatures can go nowhere to get out of his presence. Therefore, God is, what we say, omnipresent. If he is omnipresent as Word, Or if he is omnipresent, and if it is he, the Word, who becomes flesh, wasn't he already present? All right, we're doing that one again. If he is the Word, and he is God, and he's therefore omnipresent, and he becomes flesh, wasn't he already present, though not according to the flesh? And the answer is... Yes. So, his mode of presence prior to becoming flesh is the divine mode of presence because he's God. How can he become present in flesh? If already pleasant, present, 
Now, could it be that, and the word became flesh, means the word became present in a new way? Could we put it that way? No, nobody wants to say yes or no. I don't know. We're here for you to tell us. Could it be that, and the word became flesh means the word became present in a new way, in a creaturely way, by virtue of his flesh? It's all kind of technical, but we got to think through these things. If the word was God and therefore omnipresent, could his becoming flesh be seen as beginning to be in a new way where he was where he was before, beginning to be in a new way where he already was before. If by flesh, John means body and soul, creature, then though the word was present by virtue of his divinity, he became present in a new mode by virtue of his humanity. And it's pretty clear if you read the Old Testament, when it uses the term flesh and it's talking about human beings, it most often, or a lot of times at least, means body and soul. It just means human nature, okay? And I think that's what he's talking about here. The incarnation, uh, true or false, the incarnation was a relocation of the Son of God from heaven to earth. False relocation he's already present because the word was God and God is or everything's just present to God sorry brother I told him yesterday don't do that scares me Uh, so the incarnation is not a relocation an act of moving to a new place by the word from heaven to earth it's actually weirder than that It was the assumption, the taking and uniting to the person of a created human nature. We've got to be careful here, right? It's a minefield for saying bad things. And by the way, if without him nothing was made that was made, and the flesh he assumed was made, guess what? You've got to have room in the way you talk about creation to say this, the word created his own flesh somehow. He's the author of his flesh. But there are other verses that say, well, God prepared a body for him. And other verses say the Holy Spirit did something in the womb. So there you have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the divine co-agents of the thing that holy thing in the virgin's womb. This is Christmas, by the way, before Christmas, before Thanksgiving. This is Christmas before Thanksgiving, right? Okay, that's enough of that. My brain's fried already. How about this in John chapter 2? Destroy this temple, and in three days... I will raise it up. The Lord Jesus said that while on the earth, speaking as the one person according to his human nature, because he's using his lungs. And we know from verse um, 21 that he was speaking of the temple of his body, right? Remember when John says, oh, by the way, he's speaking of the temple of his body. 
By the way, you know what happens in verse 22? John says, oh, by the way, we, some disciples didn't get what Jesus meant by what he said until after the resurrection. But he did say this, destroy this temple. He's speaking about his body, his human body. Destroy it, kill me, and in three days I'll raise it up. So does this mean there are no other divine persons involved in the execution of divine power terminating on the Son of God incarnate in order for him to be resurrected? Is Jesus saying, look, I'm going to do something to the exclusion of all other agents? The Father's going to have nothing to do with my resurrection. He uses the first person singular. I will raise it up. The Holy Spirit will have nothing to do with my resurrection. I'm going to do this on my own independent authority or whatever. No, we don't want to say that because we just read John 1.1. And when it says there, nothing is coming to being that, that is coming to being apart from him. We don't say, therefore, the Father and the Holy Spirit could have nothing to do with the creation of all things. Because if you read the entire Bible... There are texts that predicate creation to the Father, texts that predicate creation to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. So we don't read our Bibles like this. We read them like this, okay? We've got to be uh, bibbling in our Bible readings and interpretations. So not every scripture text says everything there is to say on the issues involved in the text under investigation, right? Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. He's going to raise up the temple of his body according to or by virtue of the power of his humanity? No. He's going to raise his body up. He's going to bring, unite his human soul with the corpse By virtue of his divinity, God does those kind of things. Um, Hallelujah that he does. So even though he says, I'm the agent of my own resurrection, we can't read it as to the exclusion of all other divine agents. Who, by the way, are three agents, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who all act simultaneously by virtue of one agency. We call that divinity, but that's for the Trinity. Let's go to John 8, 58. We're just kind of going through some John texts here. And they're very familiar texts. Before Abraham was, I am. You know that. In John 8, I think three times, John 8, 24. John 8, 24. John 8, 58. And there's another text where I think they are I am full stop statements made by our Lord. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So full stop. I am full stop. Now, the first mention of I am in relation to Abraham in the Old Testament is Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. I say it that way because there's a lot of I am's in Isaiah. But it's not the first time I am is revealed to us as a name for God. 
The first time in relation to Abraham is all the way back in Exodus 3. Now, Jesus has a Jewish audience here, and we know the rest of the story. The Jews picked up stones to stone him, or they tried to kill him, or whatever the, the next verse says, verse 59. But the audience there would have been Old Testament, you know, knowledgeable Old Testament uh, believing people. They believed that the Old Testament was the written word of God. And so when he, when he brings this name up, he's not saying, look, you think uh, Abraham lived a long time. I, I, according to my human nature, I already existed before he came into existence, and I still exist. Is Jesus claiming here, man, I'm old according to my human nature? No, that would be weird, but it's not weird enough or strange. This is stranger. I am. God revealed this name first to Moses, and it's clear from the context in Exodus 3, verse 15, that I am is the Lord Yahweh, God Elohim, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Before Abraham was, I am. I'm what or who? Yahweh, Elohim, God, Ha'on, Ego, Ami, Ha'on, or whatever the Septuagint is, the Greek of Exodus 3. The I am, the being who just is. You see what Jesus is claiming here? Now, if we were there, we could hear his voice. And if he spoke English, unlike some of us. If he spoke English, we could hear him say, before Abraham was, I am. And if we're sitting there thinking, going back 2,000 years, this dude is old, and he looks pretty good. You know, he only looks 30. What are you, what are you, is he on a keto diet? Does he rub olive oil on his skin? We would hear him speak by virtue of a nature, right? Which nature? Human nature, but he's predicating, he's saying something about not his human nature. He's speaking according to his human nature and saying something about his divine nature. My divine nature has I amness, eternal existence. I just am. Sorry, brother. You knew that was coming, though. It's, it's odd. If you've ever read Augustine on this, he just he blows your mind. It's very good, and I've quoted it before, but I don't have it in the notes this morning. But. So his claim is not that his humanity predates Abraham, right? He's not saying, yeah, I, I'm 1,500 years old according to my corpse. Okay, because we read elsewhere, there was a time when, when the Christ had no corpse, had no body. And then it came into being in the womb. And they called it that holy thing, Luke chapter 1. So he's not claiming just to be old. His claim makes him the I am before Abraham came to be. Before Abraham was, I already was this. Not man, but God. Okay. Here's a 17th century, 18th century commentator. So Christ was before Abraham was in being, the everlasting am, I am the eternal God, which is and was and is to come. 
Now, how do we make scriptural sense of this? Okay. It just seems strange. And it is. Great is the mystery of godliness. We have to say it. God was manifested in the flesh. Because that's, what, that's the way Paul interprets uh, the incarnation. But how do we make you know, a larger scriptural sense of this? The whole person speaking is I am, because it's just one person speaking. But the whole of the person is not only I am. See what I just did there? The whole person is I am, because it's one person speaking. But the whole of the person, both natures, are not I am. The person, the Son of God, is I am and flesh. He assumed flesh into the unity of the one person in order to do something with that flesh on behalf of others. Because those others could not do it according to their flesh. Because they were in such a bad state that they couldn't offer perfect obedience from that point forward and they couldn't deal with the divine wrath against their sins that was accumulated their entire life. This is one reason, by the way, that the last Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ, comes into the theater of fleshness in a womb unlike the first Adam who came into the theater of fleshness mature. Our our, our confession says perfect, which means mature. He was an adult, right? Adam wasn't created a kid. Adam wasn't in his mother's womb. But Jesus, by the way, is Jesus, was Jesus ever in his mother's womb? Yes. Is Jesus God? Yes. Is Mary the... Is Mary the... Is Mary the mother of God? Yes, but we don't like saying it. All the Protestants said it. It didn't take Roman Catholicism for people to say that. Read the Chalcedonian statement, Mary's the mother of God. Anyway, back to the I am statement. In the John text cited, John 8, 58, the one Christ speaks according to one nature about the whole Christ. The whole person, Christ, is I am, but the whole of the person, Christ, is not only I am. He is man, yet the great I am, because he exists beyond the flesh. Have you ever heard that before? The Son of God beyond the flesh. It's pretty typical. It's used a lot in the more technical language. You know what it means? It means extra Calvinisticum. That's for Jess. He gets frustrated when I don't use technical terms. Extra, beyond or outside of, and Calvinisticum refers to John Calvin. But we could call it the, the extra flesh, the outside of the flesh. The Son of God exists in the flesh, but beyond the flesh as well, as God. Some people called it the extra vermiglianum. Because a guy named Vermigli used it in debates with Lutherans on whether or not 
the Son of God incarnate after his exaltation or sometime before it, was ubiquitous, omnipresent, according to both natures. By the way, you know that's what Lutherans teach. That's how Christ is present. He communicate, the divine nature communicates to the human nature ubiquity, which means omnipresence. And Mr. Vermigley said, not on my watch. But this thing, this beyond the flesh thing, it way predates these 7th, 16th and 17th century guys. It goes all the way back to the canonical writers of the Hebrew and Greek testaments, the Old and New Testaments. And it's all over the patristic writers where they distinguish very carefully between the Son of God incarnate according to his humanity and the Son of God incarnate according to his divinity. And so sometimes they can say, uh, God the Son died. The impassable died. According to the only nature that can die, according to his human nature. Um, do we have time for one more text? Sure, says Mario. Acts 20, 28. Let's go to that Acts 20, 28. Because now we have, we have the Apostle Paul, this side of Pentecost, saying something about our Lord. It's very important. It's this side of Pentecost. Now, you remember when Jesus in uh, John 14 through 16 gives these unique promises to the disciples in the upper room? Hey, when I go, I'm not going to leave you an orphan. I'm going to send you a helper. He's going to help you remember what I said. He's going to teach you all things. And he's going to tell you about things to come. That's the gift of the Spirit, the special endowment for the apostles. Now, you remember back about a century ago when I was preaching through the Gospel of John, I made some observations. Sometimes people say good and right things about Christ, and then two verses later, they undo it. And so they're saved in one verse, and three, two verses later, they're damned. Remember I said, let's don't do that. I think I quoted J.C. Ryle. Be very careful. They didn't have all the data. They had the Son of God incarnate, and they had the Old Testament. But they didn't have the special endowment that the apostles got after Jesus ascended into heaven, Pentecost, and the ability to interpret the incarnation the way they did after Pentecost. And here's after Pentecost for Paul. Therefore, Paul to the Ephesian elders, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he, God is the nearest antecedent, he purchased... With his own blood. Okay, so you got God, he, and him all referring to the same. Here we have God purchasing his church with God's own blood. So does God have blood? By now, you should be able to kind of sort through this. Maybe I can help you. Yes, pastor, God the Son incarnate has blood according to the only nature that can have blood. His human nature. So there is a way that we can affirm God has blood and not be heretical. Now we, we just looked at John eight fifty eight, right? There we have in the words of um, another guy I'm quoting here, the person of the son as the speaking subject before Abraham was, remember we're listening to the voice of Jesus, but the predicate, the thing he says about himself, I am is true only of the divine nature and not the human nature. 
But in Acts 20, 28, here's what we have. It's a bit different. The person is designated from the divine nature, God, but the predicate, the thing being said about God, is true only of the human nature, blood. Blood is said to be of the divine person who is God, but blood is not and cannot be said to be directly of the divine nature, God. Just, it's odd, but let me, uh, let me quote that paragraph in chapter 8. It's paragraph 7. I read it before. It's very important. Christ, this is our confession, in the work of mediation, acteth according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Yet, by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. Let me read that again. That which is proper to one nature, blood, is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person, the Son, denominated by the other nature, God. You see where that came from, that statement? Reflection on how the Scripture says things about the single person, the Son of God, incarnate according to both natures. Now, I have some more material, like a lot. But if I'm you, I'm going... Now nah, we're going we need to eat. Um, so what are we going to do? We're going to eat, but before we eat, we're going to contemplate. What has the preacher said? The preacher has attempted to give you an interpretation of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 and 14, where we have God, the Word, who is with God, who's not the word, but both are God. So we say, we got two gods, or we have two divine persons sharing the same essence of divinity, consubstantial with the Father. I, I used that language earlier. And then we have this word who was with God and who was God as the creator of all things. And then it says, and the word became flesh. So I, I, I said, this, this is Christmas. That's what Christmas is, or what it's supposed to be. It's, it's a money-making, billion-dollar money-making sham now. But it's um, what Christians think about at that time is actually this thing, and they sing about it. God, the mighty maker, died. Hey, uh, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. So then we went to John 2. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. And the Jew says, it took 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days. Ha! Ah! But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Oh, and by the way, the disciples didn't get all this stuff until after the Lord was resurrected. Then they connected dots with what he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the scripture, the Old Testament. The third day resurrection is predicted 
in the Old Testament, by the way. Then we went to John 8. Then we went to John 8. And in John 8, we have those I am statements. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. That sounds terrible. It is. It's the worst way to die. The worst way to die is not be run over by a train with your kids in the van. The worst way to die is to die in your sins, unforgiven. Unless you believe in the deity of Christ, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. But then we actually went to verse 58. Before Abraham was, I am. Is the incarnate son of God, I am? Yes. Is the flesh of the incarnate son of God eternal? No. So it can't be I am. The person can be I am according to the only nature that can be eternal and self-existent, divinity, but not by virtue of his humanity. Then we jumped over to Acts. God has blood. I've tried to help you figure out a way to say, yeah, he does have blood. Because God the Son assumed our nature, body and soul, with blood and shed it according to the only nature that can shed blood, his human nature. And by virtue of its efficacy, all our sins are forgiven. It's like the, the nature that sinned is the nature assumed and repaired and brought to glory but not in a stingy way because what he does he does for us and for our salvation the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from most of our sins please Lord no I need all my sins well then go read 1 John again because it doesn't say most of my sins it says all my sins Okay, it's the divine remedy for all of our sins. Foul I to the fountain, fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. I don't want to ruin any more hymns, so I'm going to say, if you have believed on the Lord Jesus, truly and rightly, in, in an orthodox way, you've already confessed this. And may the Lord use the sermon to help you say and confess it uh, clearer and better, especially during this time of year. And if you have not come to Christ, come now. Don't wait. Don't say, you know, I'm going to clean myself up. Foul eye to the fountain, fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. If you need a Savior, it's because you're not good and you can't clean yourself up. You're bad and you realize it and you go to him with all your filth and guilt to be cleansed, to be forgiven. So go now in your own mind, in your own heart. Maybe while we're singing the last hymn. So let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All things that have come into being have come into... Nothing that has come into being has come into being apart from him, the word. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Thank you for these truths. We can, uh, we can put pieces of scripture together and build a doctrine up. We can never exhaust the mystery of the love of Christ, the condescension of the Son of God in assuming our nature, in becoming a servant, 
an obedient son to make enemies of God into sons and daughters of God by virtue of the son's incarnation and work for them. Help us to sing now uh, in praise and thanks. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.